Well, good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Allison, and I'm one of the pastoral staff here at Courtright. And it is good to be together on a beautiful sunny morning. I've been so grateful for the sunshine the last couple days, trying to soak it all up. Hopefully you have too. Well, a few years ago, I was introduced to a series of books by Canadian mystery writer Louise Penny. I, like many of you it sounds like, devoured her books, not only for the suspense and intrigue, but for her fascinating and beloved characters. Throughout her books, Penny explores the duality of people. Her heroes are not all good, and her villains are not all bad, and as such, they don't neatly fit into a box. But that's really what makes them so interesting and so relatable. Our story for today also doesn't allow for nice, neat boxes. Some of you may be familiar with this story. It's where Jacob wrestles a man, sometimes interpreted as an angel or God himself. But in this passage, the reader is left with a lot of questions. Is Jacob good or bad? Has he finally learned his lesson? Who's strong here? Who's weak? Who has power? Who actually even wins the wrestling match? And as you will see, there are no simple answers to these questions. The text refuses to live in a box and rather invites us to sit with this tension, or rather, to wrestle with it. We have to wrestle to understand, wrestle to know what this says about God, Jacob, and us. And so today, I invite you to join me in the ring as we attempt to hear what God has for us today from this story. But before the big wrestling match, we have a little backstory to consider how we got here. But first, let's pray. Holy God, there is no like you. Would you open our eyes in wonder? Would you show us who you are in this passage? Would you help us to also leave changed from having had an encounter with you this morning? For we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So last week, as we returned to our Founders of the Faith series, we heard that after 20 years away, Jacob was told by God to return home. In chapter 31.3, it says, Then the Lord said to Jacob, Go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. So Jacob left his father-in-law Laban and set off to return to his homeland. Now, for those of you not with us earlier in the series, Jacob left his home 20 years ago because he had stolen the blessing and birthright of his older brother Esau. Esau was so angry at this betrayal that he wanted to kill Jacob. So Jacob ran away from home and has been living with his uncle in Padam Aran. Jacob's now married with two wives, children, servants, and he has been blessed with a lot of livestock. Jacob, the wives, the children, the servants, and camels, sheep, goats, cows, donkeys are all trekking along towards home. So we begin with chapter 32, or sorry, yeah, chapter 32, verse 1. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called that place Mahanaim. Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau. We're going to pause here. Did anyone else do a double take like I did when I first read that? Just going along, Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. Wait, angels? <laughs> Just hanging out with Jacob and all the kids, the sheep, the donkeys, and the camels? 
Clearly, Jacob is surprised to see them too, so he names the camp to mark the place where the angels met them. Now, this is one of those moments that let's say your grandma was telling this to you as a bedtime story at night. You'd stop her and have a whole bunch of questions, being like, wait, 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 what were the angels doing? How many of them were there? Why were they there? What did they look like? How did he know they were angels? How long did they stay? And sadly, grandma would tell you that we just don't know. We're given very little information and virtually no details. But that helps us to zoom in on the fact that the angels are with them, and that reminds us of God's promise to Jacob when he told him to return home, and he said that he would be with him. Here is evidence of God being with them. God is not far from this trip. He is part of it. He is making his presence known. So chapter 32 continues with Jacob making preparations to meet his brother Esau. Jacob sends messengers, his servants, to his brother Esau as the advance party and deferentially tells Esau, your servant Jacob has been living with your uncle Laban and now he and his family and all his livestock are coming to meet you and hoping to find favor in your sight. But when the messengers return to Jacob, the only answer that they bring back with him is, your brother Esau is coming to meet you and he's bringing 400 men with him. This was not the assurance that Jacob was hoping to receive from the advance party. Verse 7 says he was greatly afraid and distressed. So Jacob takes matters into his own hands. He divides the herds into two groups, hoping that if Esau comes and kills one, then the other might be able to escape. And then Jacob prays. O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted." After this prayer, Jacob takes matters further into his own hands and gets a present ready, hoping that this will appease his brother. He selects 220 goats, 220 ewes and rams, 30 camels and their young, 50 cows and bulls, and 30 donkeys. So he has this gift, this present, sent ahead of him, herd by herd, with his servants to tell Esau, these are a gift for you. In verse 20, he says, that I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. So after the trembling caravan goes on ahead across the river, hoping to be a peace offering, Jacob is left with his family and his remaining servants and animals. And now we arrive at the dark night that is the setting for our story today. So if you have your Bibles, uh, maybe you've already opened them. I should have given that encouragement earlier, but we're looking at Genesis 32. We've just done a little recap of the first part of the chapter, and now we're starting at verse 22. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. 
When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. As you can see in this story, the author is careful to set the scene for this wrestling match. It's night. It's dark. Jacob is scared and alone. Now, I'm not sure I appreciate the sending the women and children on ahead. I don't think that's usually what's meant by women and children first. <laughs> Though we can't really say what his motivation was for this act, whether it was his cowardice in putting as many people and animals between himself and Esau as he could, or whether he wondered if Esau would take pity on him as a father, husband, and family man. Or maybe Jacob had a sense of needing to do some preparation by himself. But whatever the reason, Jacob is alone in the desert, by this river, and very fearful of meeting his brother the next day. He's afraid and alone, and the narrator makes sure we know it. Now, we can only imagine that if you are in the dark, scared and alone, to suddenly realize that you are not alone would be terrifying, especially if that person started wrestling you in the dark. Once again, if grandma was telling us this story, okay, well, first of all, we might have nightmares, and second, she doesn't have a lot more details to tell us. All we know is that someone, a man, the text says, wrestled Jacob. There's a play on words that we're missing in the English. The verb to wrestle is a pun from the name of the river, Jabbok, which is the setting for this whole encounter, and also likely a pun on Jacob's name himself. Now, if you're about to meet your brother and 400 of his armed guards, it doesn't sound like the best idea to spend the night before wrestling and getting injured. By the way, a normal wrestling match is one three-minute period followed by two two-minute periods for a grand total of seven minutes. That's it. So wrestling all night long would be absolutely exhausting. This seems like the worst way to prepare to meet your great adversary. But by the end of the story, it seems to be exactly what Jacob needs. So let's explore why by taking a closer look at the story. This man seems to appear out of nowhere in the dark of the night and initiates this encounter. As we've said, wrestling until daybreak would have been exhausting, but the text tells us that the man saw that he could not overpower Jacob. So this leads to our first two mysteries, those things we talked about that don't neatly fit into a box. The first mystery is the identity of the stranger. Who is this? The narrator just names the adversary as a man. 
And as we see from this story, when Jacob asks him for his name, the man doesn't give it to him. The man seems to want to leave before daylight as he initiates ending as the day is starting to break. The darkness is shrouding his face and his identity. As one commentator, Walter Brueggemann, says, perhaps it's important that the narrative is not explicit. In its opaque portrayal of the figure, the narrative does not want us to know too much. It's part of the power of the wrestling that we do not know the name or see the face. And Jacob seems to know something of who his opponent is. He says, I will not let you go until you bless me. And after the encounter, he says, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. The man seems to possess an inherent authority. With just a touch, he injures Jacob, and he not only grants a blessing, but also bestows a new name and a new identity on Jacob. The prophet Hosea attributes the man to an angel of God and says that Jacob talked with the Lord Almighty. We hear this in Hosea 12, 3-5. Talking about Jacob, he says, In the womb he grasped his brother's heel. As a man he struggled with God. He struggled with the angel and overcame him. He wept and begged for his favor. He found him at Bethel and talked with him there. The Lord God Almighty, the Lord is his name. So whether the man was an angel representing God or God himself, we're not quite sure. But this leads us to our second mystery. Regardless if it was God himself or a representative of God, how come the man could not overcome Jacob? Another version says he did not prevail against Jacob. How could God or one with the strength of God not overcome a human? There's a mystery within the mystery here. It says the man could not overcome or prevail against Jacob, and yet, with one decisive touch, manages to dislocate his hip. Could the man really not prevail against Jacob when it seems so relatively easy for him to incapacitate him? What if the passage is talking about something other than physical strength? We've seen Jacob, the heel grabber, the supplanter, the trickster, fight and struggle against various things in his own life. From the time he was born, it seemed he was trying to get there first, to supplant the birth order. Then he swindles the birthright from his brother and steals his blessing. We further see this self-interested determination. Jacob, the wrestler, the supplanter, Jacob, the trickster, what if there's something about Jacob's drive and motivation or character that wrestles or struggles, that fights against? And perhaps it is this fight, this will in Jacob, that the angel is not able to overcome. This might give us a clue as to the purpose of this whole interaction. Like we said, the wrestling match does not seem like ideal timing on the eve of meeting his brother who wanted to kill him. But perhaps there's something more going on. Once again, the questions of who was stronger and why could the man not overcome cannot be wrapped up with simple answers. We are invited to wrestle further with the story. Taking a closer look at the interaction and conversation between the man and Jacob, the man asks Jacob to let him go for the sun's coming up. Jacob, injured and clinging to the man, says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Jacob, the blessing swindler, is still hunting blessings. He has been given the ultimate blessing. 
He is the one to carry on the covenant, to be the one to benefit from a special relationship with God that was given to his grandfather Abraham and then to his father Isaac and now to him. He's been assured that his descendants will be numerous, that he will have land, and most importantly, that God will always be with him, that he will be blessed and that those who are with him will be blessed because of him. This blessing was passed on, was said from his father, but to offer more assurance and affirmation of the promise, the Lord appeared to Jacob in a dream and reiterated this, saying, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you're lying. The descendants will be as numerous as the dust. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And then Jacob lives out, he experiences the fruitfulness of this promise. He's blessed with descendants and wealth and God's presence. Jacob has two wives, 12 children, many servants, and hundreds of goats and sheep, and dozens and dozens of camels, cows, and donkeys. In chapter 31, the Lord tells him, go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and again says, and I will be with you. And later in that chapter, Jacob recounts another dream where God spoke to him. And finally, at the beginning of this chapter, as we already mentioned, there's a bunch of angels just hanging out at the camp with them. Jacob is indeed blessed, an abundance of blessings. God has been faithful and kept his promises to him, and he has seen them fulfilled. So why is Jacob wrestling an angel all night for more? He's scared. All that he has could be taken away by the vengeance of an angry brother. He's afraid for his life and the lives of his loved ones. Now, from the vantage point of the audience, God could not have been more clear that he would be with Jacob on this journey. God was the one who told him to go back. He said several times, he's even sent angels to hang out with him. But Jacob's fear clouds his faith. His fear dominates, overpowers his memory. He has been given so much, and yet he asks for more. Well, this is something I can certainly relate to. In a very difficult season of begging God, pleading with God, bargaining with God, after three, four, five, six, seven, and more years of wrestling, my desire and my grief clouded my faith, overpowered my memory. I was so aware of what I didn't have, it was hard to keep sight of all I did. One song became an anthem for me at this time, The Goodness of God. All my life, you have been faithful. All my life, you have been so, so good. And instead of just feeling weary from wrestling with unanswered prayer, I'd hang on to this line. Your goodness has been running after me, running after me. So much goodness, so much blessing, so much he had actually been chasing me with blessing, running after me with goodness. Jacob the blessed one, the chosen one, the covenanted one, the wealthy one, hangs on and won't let go until he is blessed again. Before the blessing, the man asks Jacob his name. 
and Jacob responds. Now, interestingly, when Jacob asks the man for his name, he only responds with a question, why is it that you ask my name, and does not give an answer. Knowing the name of another has a lot to do with power. There's a sense that if you know the name of someone or something, you could wield power over it. We see this in Jesus' interactions with demons in the New Testament. I learned a bit about this when I was spending time with Sanctuary when I lived in Toronto. Sanctuary is an organization similar to Royal City Mission that particularly makes space for the marginalized and those living close to the streets. Now, it was normal for me in my usual context to say, hi, my name's Allison, and expect someone to immediately tell me theirs. But I learned not to do this in that setting. For someone who has little worldly possessions and who's likely been treated unwell by many, entrusting one of the things they do have, their name, to you is a great honor and not to be done on the first meeting. Even when I was given a name, I knew often that it was a name that they had assumed and not their name from birth. It was interesting, as I was getting ready to prepare for this, I wanted to give you an example of one of those people I met and their name, and I kept going back and forth in my notes going, oh, they entrusted that to me, and it actually just even seems too precious, even though it's not their real name, too precious to just offer on their behalf. So there's something special, there's something precious, there's something... Um, powerful about knowing a name. It gives some kind of power and authority. And in this context, that trust was not implied. It actually had to be earned. So throughout this whole story, there is a power struggle, literally and figuratively. This part about names is no exception. The man shows authority in asking Jacob his name, and Jacob submits by answering. Now, when Jacob tries to do the same thing, the man puts Jacob in his rightful place, saying, why is it that you ask my name, and does not give that power to Jacob? That is the man's authority, and not Jacob's. But way beyond the authority bestowed with sharing one's name, to name or rename something is the ultimate act of authority. I remember when we named our daughter Zoe, it was such a strange feeling. We just, like, told people her name. We made it up, and then people started using it. It was like, it worked. <laughs> and then we got an official document from the government in the mail with her name on it, and I remember thinking, that's so straight. Do they know we just picked it? Like, and there it is, all official. But one who names or renames another has ultimate authority over them. The man says, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. Now, at that time, your name was more than just what people called you. It said something about your character. It defined you. Jacob, as we've talked about earlier in the series, means heel grabber, which is like calling someone a trickster or one who will trip you up. In Genesis 27, Esau exclaims, Isn't he rightly named Jacob? This is the second time he's taken advantage of me. He took my birthright, and now he's taken my blessing. He's such a Jacob. Jacob, the supplanter, trickster, is being given a new name. And with a new name, he's also given a new identity. There is no clear consensus in the commentaries on what exactly Israel means. 
It seems the best interpretation from the way the two root words are put together means something along the lines of God prevails or God struggles, God rules, God preserves, God strives, God protects. Now, it's interesting here that the name itself means God prevails, but the reason given for the new name to Jacob is because you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. Is it God or Jacob? Once again, the power dynamic here is uncertain, but this only adds to the significance of the new name and identity. Inherent in this new name is both a calling forth and an invitation to surrender. And that could sum up this whole interaction. The calling forth. Jacob is affirmed for the part of him that wrestles. Even in this interaction, God is welcoming his need to struggle against things. It's part of who he is that God is affirming. You have struggled against God and humans. But notice, it's not the trickster, manipulator, get-it-on-your-own-terms aspect of Jacob who is affirmed. There's a subtle but important distinction. There's a wrestling, struggling aspect to his nature that God is calling forth. But the name does not mean Jacob prevails. The name is God prevails. And this is both confusing and enlightening. For in his new name, is also a reminder of who has the ultimate authority. And this is the opportunity for surrender. A surrendering of the part of him that manipulates and tries to get things on his own terms. An affirmation of the strength and will inherent in him, but a reminder that it is God that prevails. Any prevailing that Jacob does is because God is with him. When this new identity is given, not all of old Jacob is lost. When God gives a new identity, it actually is to help and allow us to become more of our true selves. God calls forth the best of who Jacob is, the strength and passion, the fight and drive, but he shapes it like a potter and molds it into the direction that will be for his best and the best of the people who will be named after him. Any struggling or prevailing he does is to be done under the banner that it is God who prevails. And so Jacob, now Israel, is blessed. Jacob, Israel, knows something significant has happened, knows he's had an encounter with God, and so he responds by naming something that he has authority over. He names the land. He says this place is now called Peniel, or facing God. And he says that is because I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. So what has happened in this encounter? What has changed? And how has that prepared him for meeting Esau? He has a new name. And more than a new name, he has a new identity. And both his new identity and this whole encounter are calling forth something in him, as well as inviting him to surrender. What has happened here kind of reminds me, bear with me, but of taming a wild horse. In order to be able to ride a wild horse, it has to be tamed. Now, not coming from a particularly equestrian background, I did a little research, and I learned some really interesting things about taming a wild horse. One source said 
The first couple of hours is spent establishing some initial trust and respect between the horse and the person. And that earning a horse's trust is best done at first on foot with regular contact with the horse. When a horse is being tamed, one of the things the trainer is trying to do is to get the horse to look at the trainer, for the horse to keep their eyes on the trainer, to watch the trainer and follow the trainer, to come near, get accustomed to, smell, touch the trainer, and learn to follow its commands. But you have to be careful not to break the spirit of the horse. I read that if the horse's spirit gets broken, you can see it in their eyes. There is no zest for life there. They're dull and without a spark. So you want to tame the horse, but not break the horse. The trainer still wants the horse to be their horsey self, to be powerful and strong and fast but they also want the horse to be rideable. Something similar seems to be happening for Jacob, now Israel, here in this encounter with God. Something must be tamed or surrendered, but something is also called forth and encouraged. Or you might think of clay on a potter's wheel. You want the clay to be its clay self, to give structure and strength to contain things, but the clay needs to be molded and sculpted to live up to these things that are inherently true about it. The blob of clay has the capacity for structure and strength, but needs to be shaped. And so this wrestling match and the blessing of a new identity serve to call forth something inherently true to Jacob's nature and character and invite him to surrender. Surrender that to the one with ultimate authority, with ultimate power and blessing. And this encounter serves to set him up to meet his brother. If he has encountered God face to face and lived, he can meet his brother. That's what he says. Though he walks away exhausted and injured, he praises God and goes with, goes with the assurance of God with him. He went into this whole encounter looking for that one thing, assurance that God would carry him through meeting his brother. He already had that assurance from God numerous times. But now, because he is Jacob, he is a feisty fighter who prevails, and because he is Israel, who, had, who has a God who prevails, he will be okay when he meets his brother. And so the limping Jacob hobbles off, and Israel prepares to meet his brother. Notice that there is a cost to fighting with God. He doesn't walk away the same. Both his limp and his name are a reminder of the power, authority, and prevailing presence of God. Jacob leaves changed from his encounter with God. Though weakened physically, he leaves with new strength and confidence as Israel, God who prevails. As Walter Brueggemann writes, something happens in this transaction that is irreversible. Israel is something new in the world. Power has shifted between God and humankind. Israel is the one who has faced God, been touched by God, prevailed, gained a blessing, and been renamed. In the Jesus Storybook Bible, it says that every story whispers his name, the name of the one who is both perfect strength and submission. 
And while we continue to wonder about the goodness of Jacob, is he yet the hero? There is no wondering with Jesus. Jesus, in his perfect strength and perfect submission, makes a way for us to relate to God like Jacob did, to wrestle with God, to hear his voice call out our true selves and call us to surrender to his authority, to his power, to him being the one who prevails. And that is good news, that it is God who prevails. Are there ways that you've been wrestling with God? Writer Vanitha Risner writes about this. She says, there can be no detachment or apathy in wrestling. It involves direct and constant contact. When we wrestle, we believe that our cries and prayers matter. We have hope that our situation will change. We are fully engaged. God does not want our apathy. He welcomes our wrestling. And in our wrestling, we are changed. Our true selves are called forth, and our stubborn will yields to his shaping in our lives. Wrestling requires engagement, direct and constant contact. And it's in that direct contact with our maker that we are changed and blessed. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you met Jacob in this place of fear. And we thank you that you do the same for us. God, would you meet us in the places where we are struggling, where we are wrestling with you? Would you use that to draw us close to you, out of apathy, and into close and direct contact with you? And would you allow us to hear your voice calling forth what is true about ourselves, and also shaping our will into your likeness. Would you draw us close into these encounters and contact with you? And would you leave us changed for the better, for your glory? For we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.